right, there we go. We'll get that on. Um, good to see all of you guys. Good to see all these babies. I feel like they're just, they just keep appearing um, every day. And so, again, we're looking forward to being able to, to do this again. Um, I think we're looking for Father's Day is, is kind of the date. But, um, yeah, we're in Mark's Gospel. So turn on your Bible, grab a Bible, whatever. We're going to be there. If you don't have one, if you can't find one, the words will be up here back on the screen. Um, but we're going to walk through a bit of, for those of you that haven't been here, or if you're new to any of this, we need to spend a little bit of time kind of pushing back, discovering what we have learned so far in Mark's gospel, specifically these first three chapters, because they're telling, like, like Mark, again, rushes through a lot of details. We, we get Jesus on the scene, we get his baptism, we get his temptation. That's all, like, uh, a couple paragraphs into to chapter one, and then Mark s- transitions really quick to Jesus kicking off his public ministry. Um, and then what we see is a series of disputes, confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so Mark moves us really quickly into Jesus's fame and kind of recognition and popularity growing, but then there's already tension that he brings in and undercuts all of Jesus' kind of rise to celebrity and fame um, with this tension of the rising confrontation with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. And so what you see Mark doing in each one of these stories, and you'll see this as we kind of go back and go through them, is it begins with a contrast, right? And so we're upholding Jesus and what Jesus does or says against something else, and primarily against the Pharisees, against the religious leaders, or against like kind of ritualized traditions that they uphold. Now, all of those had good reason afforded to them. Like, why would we continue to live out and memorialize and commemorate and celebrate the things that God had instituted for Israel? So those things in and of themselves, of course, are not bad. God put those things in place. But we see how Jesus views all of that versus how the religious leaders of the day viewed all of that. But then we have a subtle shift in the story from contrast to conspiracy. And that's what we find ourselves today. To see that, we just need to pay attention because there's a cycle that Mark um, brings out and and kind of brings to light here over and over again in these stories. And so it's it's simply this, that that there's a question, and more often than not, again, that's that's from the Pharisees. And then Jesus' response to that And then there's a key aspect that unites the stories. So let's just kind of go back. Let's begin with the contrast. Like, go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 22. And Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, right? And and we're told, and and, and what we're told through this interaction is that the way that the way that he teaches, right? Like what they're hearing, it's just, it's just different. That the scribes they're hearing this, and, and the way that Jesus is teaching is different than the way that the scribes or the Pharisees would teach. Jesus teaches with an authority that they just do not appear to have. And so the, the contrast then is made by the people. They notice this. They see as they hear Jesus teaching, and they observe the differences between how Jesus teaches and how the scribes or the Pharisees teach. So Jesus shows up right? And, and almost instantly, in Mark's gospel at least, Jesus shows up and he, he begins to proclaim the good news of God's reign here on earth. He says, the kingdom has come, it's before you. I, I'm bringing the kingdom. And it, and it sounds 
distinctly different from the disputation and the debate and the discussion held by the religious leaders of the day. See, they would go out for a cup of coffee or whatever, and they would talk back and forth about the law. They were like split hairs over like the tiniest of minutiae about the law. While Jesus shows up and Jesus is freeing people from the constraints of the law, Jesus is just built different, right? And then in the next episode, Jesus like overturns the people's expectations. He surprises and he shocks everyone by, by healing and forgiving the sins of a man who was paralyzed. And the scribes question this and they begin discussing with each other and they ask some questions and like, like this, they're like, why, why does this man speak in the way that he does? How does he speak in the way that he does? And then and they bring this out, like, who can forgive sins? I mean, Jesus tells this paralyzed man, like, your sins are forgiven. So they're like, who can forgive sins besides God and God alone? And so in their minds, at least, you can start to see this creeping up, right? Uh, like, they're like, he, this is blasphemy, what this person is claiming, that, that, he, that he heals on a Sabbath and that he, that he actually claims to have authority to forgive sins. And so their skepticism is, is really also like justified, right? Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus responds with a question of his own there. He's like, what's easier to say to somebody that your sins are forgiven or to just say, get up and take your mat and, and walk? And the question reveals, I think, the key issue, right? Is Jesus a fraud? Is Jesus a blasphemer? Is Jesus running some type of con? Or is he who he says he is? And the episode ends then with this like ambiguous statement, and it's really like a clear call to action also in its ambiguity. He says this, he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up, take your mat, and go home. So he forgives this man of his sins, but he also heals him so that he can walk. So Jesus' authority to heal in that moment testifies that he also has authority to forgive. He's the forgiver of sins. Jesus is just different. In the next episode, he's dining, and we looked at this last week, with some really like objectionable, compromised con men known as tax collectors, and then a whole other category of outcasts and sinners. And once again, we have the scribes, they ask this question. This time they ask the disciples, why, why is Jesus like a good rabbi, a good righteous person? Why is he eating dinner with these people of this reputation? And Jesus answers them with this proverb. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do which just is really like an appeal to common sense, right? Like if you're sick, you should go see a physician because you're in need of one. And so that phrase was, was probably not original to Jesus. That had probably been kind of a common saying, doctors spend time with sick people. It makes sense because sick people need doctors, which means not only is Jesus like the forgiver, but Jesus is also in that moment, the great physician who heals. He's come to call sinners to repentance and heal them of really where they need healing the most, which is deep in their soul. And again, Jesus is simply different. In the next passage, we have another question, this time from the people. We're not told who exactly, but it's about the contrast between the followers of Jesus and the followers of the Pharisees and the followers of John the Baptist. They fast, but Jesus' followers don't fast. And the question is, why? Well, Jesus answers with his own question. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with him. He's like, listen, this is common sense. Like if you're going to a party, 
Like, you don't fast. You might fast before. Like, we do that, again, like I mentioned this last week around the holiday season. Maybe we'll, we'll fast before the holidays just to make room for more food, right? But none of us go to a wedding and go like, oh, I'm not going to eat any food. So you don't fast when the groom is with you. And, and here is Jesus kind of implicitly in that claim, making a very big claim. He's saying, I am the bridegroom, which is just different. And, and, and now for this morning's story, um, let's look at that. Verse, verse 23, um, and this is, this is unique here as we get into the story because there's some time has probably transitioned and we're not going to spend a bunch of time kind of building out the chronology of how this syncs up with the other gospels because, because Mark doesn't, right? We want to primarily kind of keep that sense of urgency that Mark has. And so we're just going to jump right into this, but there's probably some time that has, that has occurred between the uh, dinner situation the bridegroom situation and the story that we look at now, because as we enter into this story, we get some big clues about what's happening. So let's just go back through this. So, so one Sabbath, he was going through the grain field. So we know this is taking place on a Sabbath, right? And, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So, so Jesus and his followers, here's the scene, they're, they're, they're simply walking through a field, which doesn't seem like a big deal right? Like, what's the problem? And it, and it just so happens that, it, it, that it's on a Sabbath, and then the disciples, as they're walking through this field of grain, they begin to pluck some heads of grain off of the stalk, I don't know, and they eat it, right? And like, all of that would seem pretty innocuous to us, like, what's the big deal? But the Pharisees, they're observing this, they're watching all of this, and, and, it, and it raises some very serious concerns for them, as it, as it should, right? Like, like, it's easy to displace ourselves out of the story and go, what's the big deal? But when you place yourself in the story and understand the context of what's happening, it, it is a big deal, right? And, and so they level another accusation in the form of really a question once again. Verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So apparently what we get from the story is they're breaking the law. Like the Sabbath is a big deal and there, there's some constraints, some rules, some laws around what should happen on the Sabbath because they ask that question. What's happening? Why? And it's important to, to see this here, right? Um, there's, there's an important piece of language kind of built in that we're going to come back to that, but keep that, away, keep that locked away. Why is it not lawful to do this on the Sabbath? So before we get there, let's just start with, like, what is the Sabbath? Well, here's what we see. God establishes the Sabbath in the creation narrative, right? And then he institutes its observance for Israel in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. So there's some rules around that. You can find this in Exodus chapter 20 as the Ten Commandments are going down. But, for example, like profaning the Sabbath that's serious, like not observing it or doing something that you shouldn't do on it, that's, that's worthy of the death penalty, right? Working on the Sabbath can result in exile and even death. There's this kind of story that probably most of us don't have locked away or committed to memory. It's in Numbers chapter 15, and I say that because most of us probably don't read Numbers a lot, right? Um, but there's this kind of weird little story where um, the, the community, they come across a man who's out gathering sticks, right? He's just picking up sticks, um, but it happens to be on the Sabbath. And so he's working. It's a violation of that particular rule. 
and things don't go well for him. The community decides, hey, we've got to carry out um, corporate punishment here. And so you can see like how it is elevated to a very serious place culturally, traditionally, um, and, and religiously in the nation of Israel. Sabbath is a big deal. If you violate the rules around Sabbath, it could end your life. So, of course, this question, like, like what do we mean? We have to, we have to kind of unearth this. Like, wh- what is this about work, and, and what is it about rest on the Sabbath? It's given to the people that they would find rest, right? It, and we see God instituting. God creates. He says that it's good, and then he steps back, and then he rests. And so he establishes a rhythm of what this should look like for us, but what is work and what is rest? And so by the first century, right, so the the Sabbath is instituted thousands and thousands of years before this story takes place, but by the time we get to the first century, there were like all of these lengthy lists of what would be prohibited on the Sabbath and what would be permitted on the Sabbath. And the goal here was to leave nothing to chance, but here's the deal. None of this, none of these lengthy lists of what's permitted and what is prohibited, you can't find that in the scriptures themselves. Um, This is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, over time built out, like, here's a bunch of rules that we're going to make about the Sabbath, things that you can do and things that you cannot do on the Sabbath. And yes, like, Originally, the intent of that was like, hey, let's look at what God's intention about the Sabbath is and make sure that we observe it. And the only way that they could determine to observe it rightly was like, let's put up a bunch of guardrails around it. And so they, they, they cover their bases. They, they basically apply a rule to every single circumstance that they can think of. Now, it's easy to go into these and, and honestly kind of take a posture because some of them seem a little, a little crazy to us, right? We're like, what, you can't do that? Like, why can't you do that? And again, none of these are found in scripture. They're found primarily in this list of like 39 prohibited activities. Now, again, these are all built out over time, over centuries, and the religious leaders, it's, it's their rules, it's, it's their laws. And you can find these in what is known as the Mishnah or the Talmud, which is a collection of, of rabbinic reflections or, or writings or observances about the law. And so it's not inspired. It's not from God. It's, it's just something that the rabbis would write. Now, like that doesn't mean that it's not important, um, but these prohibitions, right? And if you go through the list of them, some of them don't make sense to us in kind of in, in our modern context. But these prohi- prohibitions included actions like baking bread, can't do that on the Sabbath, right? Um, it included reaping grain. Like you can't go out to a field and pick grain. That was prohibited. Uh, making clothes. You couldn't make clothes. You couldn't construct buildings. So these prohibitions are, are, are like even forbidding, like you couldn't, you couldn't move an object. You could, I, I couldn't do this. Like that would, be, that would be prohibited underneath these Sabbath observances. So, so that's where the question comes from, they're clearly, like, like the reality is the Pharisees have Jesus and his disciples dead to rights right here because they're, they're traveling. So there were prohibitions forbidding traveling. And so you could not take more than 1,999 steps, 
right? Which I don't know how without a Fitbit you would ever even keep track of, but if you took one more step, you would be in violation of that Sabbath law. So they see Jesus traveling. The only traveling that you could actually do is over a body of water. And so there's crazy stories about modern people that observe the Sabbath that like place water underneath the seat of their car, right? Like a water bottle. And so they're traveling over a body of water and they're not violating the Sabbath. And so that's kind of the, the heart of what's happening here. Like let's come up with all these rules to make sure that we're, we're in compliance with the observance of the Sabbath let alone never asking the question, are we actually finding rest? Are we actually worshiping God? But we're, we're keeping the rules, right? So it makes sense. You, they couldn't travel and they're traveling and then you couldn't, minimally, you couldn't reap or pick grain. And so they're violating the Sabbath. And so the question makes sense, right? But then notice Jesus's response here. He doesn't dispute about the existence of the law. He doesn't jump in and say like, hey, let's get into the nitty gritty of this, right? Now, keep in mind, these are, these are man-made laws. These are the rules of the Pharisees about the Sabbath, not necessarily God's rules. And so, and so he, doesn't, he doesn't jump into this dispute about whether gathering grain or food on the Sabbath is generally unlawful or not. Instead, he makes a parallel, right? And he himself kind of contrasts this. He draws from this like, really rather like, obscure story from the life of David. And my guess is most of us don't know this story, right? Like most of us cannot be expected to, to know every single story about like King David. Most of us don't remember what we had lunch for yesterday. So he pulls from like the really obscure story in Samuel. Um, most of us, if we have any stories locked away about King David, we, we know like the story of Goliath and we know the story of Bathsheba. Like we probably, and, and sometimes we conflate those two and it gets really weird, right? Because there's a giant Philistine man taking a bath on a rooftop and we're like, what's happening in this story? But he pulls out this story from 1 Samuel, and it basically goes like this. And he said to them, have you ever or have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also it gave it to those who were with him. So we got David, and he enters in on like the day of atonement or in and around that and there is the bread of the presence there's 12 loaves of bread to represent the tribes of israel and so just just his presence in the temple was forbidden uh, forbidden and then he takes people with him and then he eats this bread that's consecrated that nobody besides the priests were supposed to touch or eat and so he's clearly violating so many things here and it's on a sabbath right so we're, we're going to come back to the issue of, of Sabbath keeping and exceptions here in a moment. But, but notice the subtle implication of Jesus's question here, right? Because this is even probably more important in what he's doing here. Because we could get stuck in the minutiae, which is what the Pharisees are trying to drag Jesus into. They're like, let's get into a, an argument about what is lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, no, no, like I'm doing something completely different here and you need to pay attention to what I'm doing because because there's a subtle implication to Jesus's question here who is he comparing himself to and and his disciples he's comparing himself to David and his followers right um remember that that terms like this like son of God and messiah those those are very very loaded politically charged terms with deep religious, cultural, social implications here. 
So, so son of David is another term just like that. And, and Jesus doesn't call himself the son of David directly in what he just said, but he implicitly asserts that he is David's son, which is significant. He's saying, I come from the line of David. Now, he can back that up, right? He can back that up with a genealogy that shows he's from the line of David, but there's something important to pay attention to there, right? He is saying and he is asserting not just a comparison in this story so that he can draw out, is he lawful to do this or not? He's establishing a baseline in this conversation that he is in fact from David's line, he is in fact the promised Messiah. So this implication, like we can't miss it here. And then he gives like another kind of like pithy proverb, right? And he said to them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And, and again, notice the subtlety and the ambiguity of the terms Son of Man there. So the Old Testament background could, could simply refer to this. It's used at times um, to just refer to like human beings or all of humanity, the Son of Man, right? And then Psalm 8, like look at Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. So that's just a generic term saying like humanity is the son of man, right? Or it could refer to this like exalted, almost divine figure who represents the people of God and receives authority and dominion over all the peoples of earth. So those are, those are two very different things, like all of humanity or this divine figure, right? Like, and you see that in Daniel chapter seven where it's used there. So there's this kind of ambiguity here in how Jesus uses it. The Sabbath was made for man. The Son of Man is the Lord even over the Sabbath. So is the Son of Man coming from Psalm 8 or Daniel 7? What, what is Jesus doing here? Um, Jesus is almost highlighting, in a sense, some ambiguity around this term. I think he's bringing together the two meanings in himself. He is the one true man. He is the better Adam, right? Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. And, and he is the Lord over all things. He is the sovereign king over all things, including, as he establishes here, the Sabbath. He's saying, I'm king. I have authority over this. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So if you're the Lord of the Sabbath, that means you probably could dictate and define the rules around the Sabbath. And so let's, let's kind of finish this episode and we'll see there's a movement here from contrast to like very conspiratorial on the part of the Pharisees. So remember that the pattern in these stories that we've observed. So we kind of got to do, you got you to pull some memory if you're here from these past weeks. We kind of ran through those stories. But these stories are building, right? And we see this pattern emerge. A question from the scribes and the Pharisees, in one case from the people. Why does he speak like that? Why does he eat with them? Why don't the disciples fast? Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answers these questions with his own question, or, or, or like a proverb, or, or really sometimes both, like which is easier to say? Sick people need a doctor. Do the, do the guests fast when the bridegroom was with them? Do you remember that time when David, out of need, did what was unlawful? The other thing I want us to observe real quick, like, is this. I think it's I think it's easy for us to jump to the point where we're like, finally, here's the confrontation with the bad guys in the story, right? Jesus is finally getting around to confront the, the, the Pharisees, the religious elite, 
um, the, the legalism that they had, the self-righteousness that they had. And yes, he is. But not because he despises them, right? Not because he hates them. Those are his image bearers created by him and through him and for him. He loves them. He's just simply doing something different. There's a bigger contrast that's happening here that, that I think it, it gets missed because I think it's easy for us to go like, yeah, we should, especially for those that grew up in church, and if we grew up in churches that like legalism was off the charts and like self-righteousness was off the charts, we want to distance ourselves and move away from that so quickly, right? But, but there's a contrast that's happening here. See, Jesus has spent time with some disreputable sinners, right? And he, like think about Levi, the calling of Levi, right? There's a significant thing that we didn't even really highlight, but, but Jesus, when he confronts Levi and, and offers this invitation to follow me, he, he doesn't just say, hey, I'll just, just come as you are and just stay who you are. He calls him away from something that he was doing that was sinful. He's a, he's a con man. He's lying to his people. He's extorting his own people for his own profit and gain, right? Yes, he was disreputable. Yes, he's an other. Yes, he's an outcast from society. I think we push the needle a little too far at times because we don't recognize what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is showing up to irreligious people in some of these first stories, and he's calling them out of their irreligion, right? He says, follow me. Get up. Like, your sins are forgiven. Go take your mat and walk. So he's calling irreligious people out of that state that they're in. And we get to the point of the stories with the Pharisees, he's calling the religious leaders, calling religious people out of that, right? I think it's so easy for us to kind of have this disdain for the Pharisees and move the needle so far over here that we miss, look, Jesus is actually calling everybody out of something into something completely different. And he's not calling people into, and I'm going to give my friend Seth some, some credit here, because um, we were talking about this the other day. He's not calling people to find a happy medium between the two. He's not calling people to moderate themselves out of their irreligion or out of their religious ways and find some moderate ground in between. I don't think he's even calling people to like a third radical way, because I don't think that the gospel is a third radical way. I think the gospel is the way. It is the reality that he's calling both irreligious people out of and religious people. And he's calling them out of that sin and that self-dependency and that self-righteousness. And he's saying, the gospel is the way. Follow me and follow the gospel. And so let's get to this last story and, and we're almost done here. Because um, each of these encounters, we need to see, they kind of build, right? And so we get to, to chapter 3. And he said, and again, he, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. So we've got Jesus now back in the synagogue and we've got this guy that we don't quite understand what's going on, but apparently he's got this withered hand and they, and they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that's another thing. It's, it's, a, it's another Sabbath. We don't know if this is the same Sabbath or if it's another Sabbath. Um, if it's the same Sabbath, Jesus is just having a bad day, right? Like so much, like he's the Jack Bauer of Jesus's. He has so much stuff happen on a, one bad day, right? So he, he enters into the synagogue on the Sabbath so that they may accuse him. So that's, that's it, right? What were the Pharisees doing before this, right? If you go back to even the, to, to chapter two, the story that we were in when they're walking through the grain fields, what are the Pharisees doing? They're watching him, right? So they're observing him, 
But then you see the difference here. That they've gone from observing to accusation, right? So that's where the conspiracy comes in. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked under, or he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to, them, to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So we've shifted. They're not just like, let's pay attention to Jesus. Let's get Jesus. Let's get Jesus. Let's catch him in something that we can accuse him of, and let's remove him from the scene. Now, we saw this build in John's gospel too, right? So here's the story. Jesus enters the synagogue. There's this man with this withered hand, and and they're watching so it's safe to assume that the they here is the Pharisees. Um, he mentions them down in, in, in verse 6 of chapter 3, right? But notice they're not really asking any questions at this point. They're waiting with accusations. They've planned this. This is premeditated on their part. They know that, that Jesus takes some liberty with the Sabbath, right? Because you see that with the disciples in the grain. They're like, hey, he's not following our rules, right? which is that's the significant thing. That's the significant piece to the Pharisees. It's not that Jesus is in violation necessarily of the scripture. It's that they're breaking his rules, right? Y'all get that? Like, we know what that looks like. Like, how many of you have somebody over for dinner, like another family, and they break your rules, right? You're like, you have family rules, right? And it's not that big of a deal in that situation. At least I hope you don't make it that big of a deal because that's weird. But like we all have, we all have like rules for our family or rules for a life that we make up that we, and they, and they just kind of work for us. And that's in a sense, that's what is happening here, right? They're not breaking, Jesus and his disciples didn't break the law. They just broke the rules of the Pharisees. And so they're, they're waiting with him and they're like, man, he takes so many liberties with the Sabbath right? He heals on the Sabbath. He picks grain on the Sabbath. He casts out demon on the Sabbath. And now here's this man with this withered hand. You almost wonder, like, did they just go out in the street, grab him because they knew Jesus was going to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and like place this guy here because they knew that Jesus couldn't resist healing this guy. And, and we're not told that, but it just makes you wonder, right? So here's this guy and we're in the synagogue and we're on the Sabbath again. And the Pharisees, they're waiting for Jesus just to heal this guy. They're waiting for Jesus to do something good for this person so that they can accuse him of flagrantly violating God's law so they can put him to death, right? We should pay attention to that, right? Because, because the reality is we build out rules in churches too, right? And, and, and people violate those rules. And we're like, sometimes we're just waiting for it, right? It's not scripture. It's just our rules. Like this is what we do. And, and sometimes we wait for people to do that, right? Now, they're waiting to put Jesus to death, right? I'll just tell you right now, if you break a rule here at Hub City, we're not going to put you to death, right? We don't even really have any rules, but this is what's happening here, and it appears, like it appears, right, that Jesus is just walking right into their trap, right? I don't know where Admiral Akbar was, why he did not yell out, it's a trap, but they're walking right into his trap, right? And the reality is, they just actually walked right into Jesus's trap, right? Because he, he sees them in their silent waiting, and, and he sees the man with the withered hand, and he says to the man, come here, right? He doesn't actually give his attention to the Pharisees. First, he says to the man, come here. And the Pharisees are ready, like, oh, we got him. This is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. And then Jesus, like, springs his trap, and he asks them 
the question first. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Like, can you do either of those two things, to save a life or to kill? So he covers a pretty broad, like, kind of, you know, like, can you do good? Can you do bad? Can you kill somebody? Can you save a life, right? Which is really like a pretty cunning question on Jesus's part, because if they respond, hey, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, then Jesus says, yeah, that's what I've done on every single one of these Sabbaths is I've done good, so be healed. But if they say, hey, the Sabbath law demands that you can do no harm to people, then Jesus says, well, like, show me the verse, like prove it, right? So, so by framing it around like killing, Jesus uses an extreme case here in order to identify like a basic principle. Can you kill someone on the Sabbath? Obvious answer, no, you should never do that, right? Should you let someone die on the Sabbath? Like if the guy back in Numbers who was picking up sticks, if he was picking up branches and sticks because a tree happened to fall like on a, on a small child and he was trying to save that child, like yes, he's working, he's violating the law by picking up these sticks, but he's saving a life, right? So, so of course, they're, they're trapped. They're like, of course you can do good on that. Like you can't just let somebody die. You can remove harm from somebody on the Sabbath, right? The shocking thing is that the Pharisees they, they see where the line is going. They see where Jesus is going with this, and they stay silent, right? They're just like, oh, boy, <laughs> right? Is it lawful to kill on the Sabbath? Uh, we're, just not, we're not going to answer your question, because if we do, it's going to completely undermine what we're trying to accomplish here, right? So, so where, where does this silence come from? What does it mean? Like, silence can mean a lot. Silence can speak loudly. There are times when silence says more than a thousand words. Silence can reveal our hearts. And there's times where silence is wise and appropriate, and there's times when it's not. So, so what did their silence mean in response to that question on this Sabbath in, their, in this synagogue? What does it reveal? Well, it reveals this. It reveals that they are so committed to their to their power they are so in love with their prestige they are so obsessed with their authority and they're so confident in their interpretation of the law that they have actually elevated their rules above actual scripture and ignored biblical mandates like justice and mercy and love and doing good and and saving lives like they have erected a system of tradition and rules and implications of God's law, but they have lost sight of the entire purpose of that good and holy law. God's law is good. It's a law of love. It aims to promote our security and, 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 and like promote our human flourishing by protecting life and family and marriage and the poor, and it ensures justice and fair treatment among neighbors. And at the center of the law and God's purpose of it is to guard the worship and the reverence of God, which is essential for any thriving human community with God at the center. So that's the purpose of the law, but they have twisted it and contorted it, and they have remained silent when asked if their understanding of the law makes it lawful to do harm and kill on the Sabbath. Jesus is like, hey, is it cool to just let somebody die or to kill somebody? And they stay silent, right? They've done this because of the hardness of their hearts, and Jesus is not indifferent to that hardness. He's actually, he's actually angered by it. He's grieved by it in this story. And this is important for at least a couple of reasons. One, 
it shows this, like Jesus' emotions that come out of this story, it shows us that he's fully human. He's feeling all the feelings in this moment, right? He's moved with compassion. He's feeling grief. He's angered in this moment. Jesus experiences the full range of human life and experience, including some of our strongest emotions. And the second reason that this is significant, like what makes Jesus angry and what is grieving him in this moment is that we learn this, like there's a place, right? Like Jesus is angry here. So there's, there's a place for godly anger in our godly aligned lives, right? But, but we just need to be angry about the things that, that God is angry about, right? Not just the things that, that we want to be angry about. So like injustice, lack of compassion, like those are things that, that makes God angry. And Jesus, Jesus is anger here, right? He's angry, and, and, and his anger actually produces some fruitfulness, right? He channels this into like a deliberate, careful act of mercy because he actually heals the man. He does, he does good on the Sabbath. And then the conspiracy, right? The Pharisees leave the synagogue, and immediately, here's what they do. They plot with the Herodians to destroy Jesus, right? Now, this is ironic for a couple different reasons. One, it's that the Pharisees and the Herodians do not get along at all. Like, they are diametrically opposed to each other. The Pharisees were like hardliners, and they resented and they resisted Roman rule over Israel. The Herodians were more like compromisers. They acquiesced and they benefited from it. So there's this reality that's happening right now. And it's that this blinding opposition and hatred towards Jesus brings these two diametrically opposed parties together. It would be like Jesus showing up today, right, and going like, I'm going to figure out how to make Republicans and Democrats get along with each other by hating me so much. Like, that's what's happening here, right? And the second reason that it's ironic is this, is that they were so angry that Jesus healed and worked on the Sabbath that they immediately do what? They immediately go to work, right? They start plotting and planning, and they just disregard every single one of their rules, and they get to work plotting to destroy Jesus on the Sabbath, right? And so it brings Jesus's question to even sharper focus. Like, is it lawful to kill on the Sabbath? They're like, well, no. And then they instantly go, let's kill this guy right now. Let's bring some other people into it. So, so, so what this escalating tension, right? In this section of Mark's gospel, we need to pay attention to it, right? Because as Jesus like subtly and strikingly reveals who he is, as he's revealing more about the kingdom and, and who he is as a king, it's going to force everybody in these stories to, to make a choice. Like, what's that choice? What's the choice for this story? The choice for this story is, is this. Remember when the Sabbath was first given back in Genesis chapter 1, right? It, it was given to be a sign to the first human of God's intentions and the rhythms that he desired for his image bearers. He creates. He spends a lot of time creating. And then he steps back and he says, this is good, right? He doesn't say it's perfect. He says, nothing else good will come from me tinkering with the way that I have creation, right? And so I'm done, I'm finished, and then he rests. And so he's establishing a rhythm for his image bearers, right? So, so Sabbath, we have to understand, is, is a part of a pre-fall creation. 
If, if Adam obeyed God and kept covenant with God, then this eternal Sabbath rest would immediately have been experienced and always and persistently. But Adam did not obey, did he? And ever since, at every point in human history, the Sabbath day has continued week in and week out with some people observing it and a lot of people not. But it calls to us. That's God's design, like Sabbath calls to us. It literally calls to us, holding out a promise to us of a world of rest still waiting to come, a world where the shalom, the peace of God reigns and not the stain of sin and not the sting of suffering. And so, so now do you see what Jesus is really teaching in these two stories that Mark records? He's saying, now, here, at last, the Lord of the Sabbath himself is here. He has come. He has arrived. Israel's great king, David's true heir. And he's come, you see, to bring Sabbath rest down, to begin the reign of shalom right here in the middle of this broken world. Interestingly enough, when, when Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, right, we're told that, that he stretches out his hand and it was restored. The verb he uses two more times in Mark, once for another healing, and then in Mark chapter 19, he uses that verb restored to speak about the restoration of all things in the end of the age. And so you see what's happening when Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. He's providing us a glimpse, a window into the real meaning of Sabbath, where Sabbath rest can be found, where Sabbath wholeness of renewal of renewal of creation? Where does it come from? Where can you taste it and see it and know it for yourself? Well, it comes from the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, building out rules about the Sabbath and simply observing the Sabbath is not enough. Jesus wants us to know that he is the Lord over the Sabbath. And our Sabbath rest only comes by submitting to the Lord of the Sabbath. That's where it comes from. Jesus has come and he has triumphed over sin and death and hell. And he's gathering a people from, for himself. He's building his kingdom in the midst of this dark, broken world. And in his kingdom, there is hope and there is rest and there is shalom. And the Sabbath preaches then good news to us. It says this, like Jesus said, it says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is rest for you today in the Lord of the Sabbath. If the way that you observe Sabbath in your life produces a burden and it's menacing, you're not under the Lord of the Sabbath because there is restoration for you in Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. There's an open invitation for you to come today and to find rest in the Lord Jesus. That is the true meaning of the Sabbath day, which brings us to the table. See, the table that we're about to observe is a table of life and rest and wholeness and joy. And, and at this table, we see the same Jesus who reveals himself in the patterns of tension and conflict all throughout Mark chapters 1 through 3. And when the Pharisees looked at Jesus, right, they saw a blasphemer, a companion of sinners, a neglector of religious customs and habits, a Sabbath breaker, and finally a threat to their power who must be destroyed. 
But when we come to the table today by faith in grace, we see Jesus, the authoritative forgiver of sins. We see Jesus, the great physician of the soul, the doctor who eats with the sick and calls sinners to repentance. We see Jesus, the bridegroom, who was taken away so that the wedding guests may ultimately be brought home. We see Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, who gives rest and joy and meaning and life. And we see Jesus, the restorer of health and wholeness in the face of accusations, conspiracies, and hardness of heart. And so the invitation today is come and receive rest.